right, welcome back to our series, Seven, through the Seven Churches of the Book of Revelation. This is uh, week three. If you're just joining us, we're glad that you are uh, here. Hopefully you got a little white stone on your way in today. If you did, just hold up your stone for me. Please don't throw these at the preacher if you got one. All right, just hold those in your hand. And uh, we'll get to that later on in the message. If you didn't get one, there are some in the lobby. You can grab one on your way out. Now remember, this uh, letter, Revelation, was written uh, to these churches in Asia Minor. You can see a map there on the screen. Uh, This was the ancient uh, mail route, the postal route. And so these were the big cities that were going to get these letters. If it was written to the northeastern United States, then perhaps it would have been written to Boston, Philly, D.C., Baltimore, New York, or something like that. But it wasn't, right? It was written to Asia Minor. So these were the big cities in Asia Minor that got this particular letter. Remember, we have this mailbox over here, and every single week, what we're doing is we're looking inside this mailbox, and we're taking out one letter per week, and we're asking this question, what did Jesus say to the church back then in the first century. And then we're asking ourselves a more personal question. What is the Lord Jesus saying to our church in the 21st century? Uh, The first letter that we looked at was the letter to Ephesus. Remember that? Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I have this one thing against you. You left your first love. And he gave them a threefold practical strategy. Remember what that was? Three words start with R. Uh, remember, if you, if you don't remember, say it with me, remember, repent, and return. Very good. Good job. Last week, Johnny Graves did an excellent job with the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. And remember, he said, when we suffer for Christ, he is with us. And when he's with us, uh, spotting us on the bench, it is lightweight because he is the one who sees us through. Uh, the third letter is the one we're going to look at today. That is the letter to the church at Pergamum, the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was a gigantic city. It was a capital city. Population was between 100,000 and 200,000 people. Pergamum is famous for something. They're the ones who invented uh, parchment. Parchment was an ancient writing material. They would stretch out the skins of sheep or goats, and then they would use that to write books on. A lot of our uh, Bible and the, the ancient manuscripts that we have of the scriptures are written on parchment that was invented right here at Pergamum. So it was a literate city. It was a very educated city. Also, it was a very pagan city. Uh, There were four major temples there uh, where people would go to worship, and there was this big mountain, and you can kind of choose which temple you were going to go to. Uh, And that's what I want to talk to you about in this particular letter, because that really plays a lot of relevance with where we're going today in this message. And so with that said, let me just read the first verse in the letter. It says this in verse 12. Let's put that up there. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, I want you to just notice how he just begins here. This is the very first time in these letters uh, where we're going to see a strong rebuke to this church. Uh, You know, last week when Johnny was preaching about Smyrna, there really was no rebuke at all in that letter. But here, you'll notice that this letter takes a very, very different tone. Uh, There's a sharpness to it, and there's kind of an edge to it. Now, I know sometimes it's difficult to hear hard things, but sometimes the scriptures say hard things, right? And so we have to hear those hard things. The question that I want to ask and answer in this passage is this. How am I supposed to be a Christian when the culture around me is not very tender toward my belief system? How can I maintain my faith in Christ when the culture around me is not very tender towards faith in Christ? That's the question that's being asked and answered in this particular letter. So let's take a look at the next verse. It says this, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You ever go on a road trip and you're driving through a little town and there's a sign that says so-and-so was born here or so-and-so lives here and there's like a famous person that lives in that town? I remember when I was speaking in Lubbock, Texas, they had this big statue to Buddy Holly because Buddy Holly's from Lubbock, Texas, right? Do you realize what the Lord Jesus is saying here about Pergamum? He's saying, I know who resides in your city. It's the prince of darkness himself. He dwells there. The word is, is this settled, permanent Residence. It's not this, that Satan just has a presence there. It's that his throne is there in this city. It's a dark place. Now, to understand what he's talking about, you have to understand that Pergamum had a strong concentration of idolatry and false religion. So some people say that the, the throne of Satan here might be referring to the temple of the god Asclepios. You've probably seen the symbol of Asclepios. It looks like this. It's still used in the medical profession today. It's a coiled up serpent around a pole because Asclepios was the, the ancient Greek god of physical healing. And so they had this temple that was kind of medical, kind of, kind of religious, and inside the temple there were, there were actual snakes that they would use, and uh, you would go there, and sometimes they would hypnotize you, and they would seek to bring about healing in this temple. Now, I hate snakes. How many of you out there, you agree with me? Who's my snake haters out there in the audience? That's, yeah, amen. Indiana Jones was right. I do not like snakes. They are cursed by God, evil, slithering creatures. Now, how many of you out there, you actually, you like snakes? You're, you're okay? There's, there's always a few, right? And you are very brave, very brave people. Now, whether you hate snakes or, or you like snakes, the snake is one of the most symbolic animals in the ancient world. It plays a very important role in the Bible. For example, who, who could forget the story of Mary riding into Bethlehem on a snake? Now, who could forget the, the story of when Noah sent the snake out to get that, that olive branch from the ark? Remember that story? No, 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 no. no we, the snake is not in those stories because the snake is not a nice creature in the Bible. The snake represents evil. The snake represents temptation. The snake represents sin. And so this might be what's going on here with the, the dwelling of Satan, the throne of Satan. But another option, and another interpretive option, I think, is more likely, and that is when you went to Pergamum, if you looked up on the mountain, you saw this massive temple to the, to the god Zeus, the god of war. It was literally built into the mountainside. It, it looks like this. Here's a reconstruction of it. Uh, in the 19th century, it was removed stone by stone and, and sent to a museum in Berlin, Germany, where it's still on display there. 40 feet high, uh, that staircase in the middle, 60 feet wide. Now, let me ask you, what does this structure look like? If you imagine a giant sitting down on it, it kind of looks like a throne. So I think that's what's most likely being referred to here. The throne of Satan was a reference to their false worship. Now, here's the question for us today. Who's on your throne? Have you allowed anyone or anything to come in and occupy the throne of your heart besides Jesus Christ? That's the question I have to ask myself. What giant is threatening to take over my throne? We always have to be on guard because our hearts are idle factories. And, and idolatry always starts small. It starts with a series of tiny little compromises. Hey, I get paid in cash, so I don't really need to report this to the IRS. I check with my accountant. He's a Christian. He said it was fine. Oh, you know, when I'm applying for a job, I, I got to exaggerate on my resume a little bit. I think I know somebody that worked for Google. Who checks references anyway? I got to get this job. 
Let, let me just share just a little bit of gossip about this person. It's just a little bit, you know, just one time. And my family's making racist jokes. I'm not going to really say anything or call it out. I'm just going to go along with it and laugh. I don't want to rock the boat. See, what starts out as small little compromises pretty soon has a, throne, a, a, a hold on me and, and begins to sit on the throne of my heart. What's a little compromise? A little sexual immorality between two consenting adults? There's the danger. It starts small, but then over time it sits on the throne of your heart. So what giant is threatening to sit on your throne today? We know actually what it was for the church at Pergamum. Drop down with me to verse 14. He, he says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there, not all, but some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I'll come back to the Nicolaitans in just a second, but for now, the problem here is, is that some in this church were holding on to the teachings of Balaam. Now, Balaam is a character in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Now, don't name your sons Balaam, okay? Balaam was a sorcerer. Balaam was a deceiver. He was a false prophet. The, the name Balaam means a swallower of the people. Uh, the story is found in Numbers 25. Don't turn there. I'm just going to summarize it for you. What happened was the children of God were traveling through the wilderness, and, and, and Balaam conspired with this king named Balak uh, to seduce the people of Israel. And what they did was they sent the daughters of Moab uh, down into the Israelite camp to lure the men into sin and idolatry. And so some of the men of Israel defiled themselves by sleeping with the Moabite women. And then the women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, and soon the Israelites were feasting with them and worshiping the gods of Moab. And so to follow the teachings of Balaam means essentially you can try to have one foot in each world. You know what I'm talking about. One foot in the world of being a Jesus follower, but the other foot in uh, the world of paganism. Now, I firmly believe in God's love and God's mercy and, and God's grace, and without that, gosh, I would have no hope at all, right? Grace wins. But there is also a misunderstanding and a way of thinking about God's grace that's problematic. The technical theological word for that is called antinomianism. It means when I exploit God's grace in order to sin against God's law. And this is the way some people think. Hey, we live in the age of mercy, love, and grace. If I sin, it's all covered, right? Allow me to offer a quote from Puritan author Thomas Brooks, who, who talked about this. He says, there is nothing in the world that renders a man more unlike to a saint and more like to Satan than to argue from God's mercy to sinful liberty. To, to argue from divine goodness to licentiousness. He goes on to say, this is the devil's logic. And in whomever you find it, you may write, that soul is lost. Right? This is why Paul says in Romans 6, should we keep sinning so that grace might abound? And he says, may it never be. Yes, God's grace and God's love is very real. But we also have to remember that God's truth is relevant and sin is greatly displeasing to our God also. Those are not mutually exclusive. This is what happened back in the days of, of Numbers. And the Lord's anger actually burned against his own people. 20,000 people died as a result of what happened here. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them 
Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So Paul says this is an example. Notice the word scattered there. I don't want to be too gruesome, but the, the, the word there is trying to communicate the death of many, many, many people. Just picture bodies thrown everywhere by an invisible hand, like rolling dice in the game of Yahtzee, with just corpses scattered and dead all over the ground. If you've ever seen one of those old Civil War movies and you see just dead bodies everywhere, you have a good idea of what this verse is trying to picture for us. Very, very graphic. The lesson for the people of God, the example for us is, is clear. God will not tolerate high-handed sin against him forever. He will not share his glory with idols. And so we, his people, are to be pure and ready and not to compromise, or it could lead to his discipline. And God says, my judgment will start on my corrupted people. In fact, he warns them about this in verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Dave, what, what is this about? What are you saying? Are you saying there's actually a possibility of, of consequences for me living in compromise and sin? I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that. You have to grapple with this text. Read this for yourself. This isn't Dave's opinion. This is the word of God, high above every thought that you and I have. This is our authority. How many of you, you parents out there know what it's like to love your child unconditionally and have them also be in trouble? See, those two truths are not mutually exclusive, are they? So here, God says, repent. Remember, it means to, to turn around. He calls us to obedience not partial obedience. Now, you know, there's another word for partial obedience. It's called disobedience. <laughs> if anything takes the throne of my heart away from God, if I'm going in one direction, thinking a certain way, acting a certain way, and it's, it's against the things of God, I need to turn around and think a different way and, and have a change of heart, change of mind, change of... Behavior, that's what repentance is, full stop. Amen. Which, which kind of brings us to the first point today. If we're going to be Christians in a culture that's not really tender toward us, then we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to hold out for God's best. Can you say that with me? Hold out for God's best. What I mean is you don't settle for a life of sin. I know living the Christian life is hard, but you know, the scriptures actually tell us the way of the wicked is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. Trying to find any satisfaction or any fulfillment out there in a life of sin, that's not going to work. And so God knows that, and God wants what's best for him, and we need to patiently be waiting for, for God's best. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
You see, it's not that we don't, it's not, the problem is not that we have desires. The problem is we're far too easily satisfied, right? God says, you've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns that don't even hold any water. You're leaving me for that? Hold out for God's best. That's point number one. Point number two is this. If, if we want to be Christians in a culture that's not necessarily tender toward us, we've got to learn to hold fast to our faith. Can we say that? Hold fast to your faith. I got this from verse 13. Let me show you it again. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, notice that phrase, did not deny my faith. Do you see that? That's a very technical phrase. It speaks to a very specific incident when some of the members of this church had been asked to deny their faith in Christ. See, a little background. In, the, in this time, in the year AD 95, the, the emperor on the throne in Rome was Domitian. Now, the interesting thing about Domitian is he demanded to be worshipped as a god. Now, many of the other Caesars demanded uh, were worshipped as gods too. The, the difference here with Domitian is he demanded to be worshipped while he was still living as a god. And he would begin his letters saying, our Lord and our God commands you. This guy did not have a self-esteem problem. <laughs> he believed he was a son of the God sent to earth to bring peace and salvation. He was an evil and vicious man. There's a lot of stories about him. One of them is he was at this gladiator match and one of the gladiators was being heckled by somebody in the crowd. And he saw that and he goes, you, in the arena, now, he was mauled by the animals. That's it, done. Another story, one of his priestesses was, was um, offending him, and he had her buried alive. There's this famous revolt called the Saturninus Revolt. He put that revolt down, and then just to make sure it was all over, he brought forth the, the leaders of that revolt to have dinner with them, and he set their plates, and then in front of their plates was their own tombstone. Just imagine having dinner in front of your plate is your own tombstone. That's a little subtle message there of what happens when you mess with this guy, Domitian. But Domitian had a problem. In Asia Minor, there was this small group of people who refused to bow down and worship him. They refused to bow down and worship him. This made him furious. Uh, Historian Ethelbert Stauffer says, Domitian was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement there stood an enigmatic figure who threatened the glory of the emperors. He was the first to declare war on this figure. We have historical records of how this would work. So what the emperor would do is he would travel to the different cities in his empire, maybe like once a year, and he would stop at their places of worship and he would gather everybody from the town, and he would have them all stand up, and then he would have them all bow down. And then if you did, you got a little white stone that would be your proof that you could now have access to buying and selling in the different feasts and festivals around in that city. That's what you needed. Now, how many of you got your white stone? Just take that out for a second. So, he goes to the next place of worship, next town, gathers everybody together, has them all stand up, then has them all bow down. And then if you didn't bow down, hey, they didn't bow down. Kill them. Simple as that. 
they were not messing around. The Romans were the people who invented crucifixion, okay, just vicious. And so everybody, everybody bowed down to Domitian. The emperor declared open season on anybody who refused to worship him. So what would you do? What would you do? You're a Christian. You're living in Pergamum. Domitian is coming to town tomorrow. What do I do? It's easy to think about when it's not you and your wife and your children whose lives are at stake here, but what what if they were? What would you do? Everybody's doing it. If you don't, you die. What do I do? Now, some of the Christians in the first century were saying, come on, just go to the thing and do the thing. It's no big deal. You just bow down. You got your family to worry about. You got to feed your family. It's not, it's not like you really mean it in your heart anyway. Just do what you got to do. No big deal. The people who taught and thought this way were called the Nicolaitans. You see them show up in a couple of these letters in Revelation. But John is saying, no, don't think like them. Don't bow down. It's a really big deal. You need to hold fast to your faith. Now, we aren't exactly in that type of situation, at least not at this point in our country, um, though we could be headed there. So often when I see studies of the book of Revelation, the question that they begin to ask is, are you prepared for the coming of the Lord? And that's a valid question. That's a good question. But another question that actually comes up pretty regularly in the book of Revelation is, Are you prepared for the persecution that could come upon you as a result of being a Christian in this world? That's actually probably a more relevant question. We have to ask ourselves, and every generation has to ask themselves, what in my day is, where am I being asked to bow down to the gods of my culture? That's the question. I was really struck a couple of weeks ago with this story. Maybe you saw it. It was all over the news about quarterback Drew Brees. He, he plays for the Saints. He's a Christian. He, he made a very short promo video for Focus on the Family, for Bring Your Bible to School Day, which is the first week of October. And he quoted a Bible verse, and that was kind of it. Afterwards, social media, the Twitterverse, he was fiercely attacked for associating with this group, this hate group, Focus on the Family, who stands for traditional values and doesn't hold to what's so important to those with the LGBT agenda. So there's this strong reaction to Drew Brees. He's a bigot. See, he's discriminating. See, he's, he's he's a hater, all this stuff. Now, what were those around him demanding that he do? They were demanding he bow down to the cultural gods of our day. He was being forced. This is the test. Before all of us, now you might not play football or that might not be the battle you have to decide, but you have to ask that question. Where am I being asked to bow down to the cultural gods around me? Maybe it means you're in a conversation with some non-Christian friends and you're tempted to kind of relax your exclusivist stance uh, about Jesus. You know, maybe Jesus isn't the only way. Maybe there's more than one way. Maybe it means when you share your faith, you just don't ever talk about things like God's wrath or God's judgment or sin. You just talk about God's mercy and love and grace. You know, I don't actually like confrontation. I, I hate confrontation. I, I, would, I would like everybody in the whole world to like me. Uh, that's my thing, right? So I have to constantly battle that. But, but here's what Jesus says in, in Luke 6. He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. See, see, following Jesus has always had like this edge to it. 
you cannot escape that. He's just a very polarizing figure. You're with him or you're against him. So our lives, our, they should have a sort of gutsy, risk-taking, courageous sort of flavor. Our lives should display a toughness that kind of keeps other people off balance. Our lives should have a saltiness that gives people a taste of how great our God is that we would even be willing to suffer for his sake if, if necessary, right? See, ours is a generation where everything nailed down seems to like be coming loose. Things that we, ne- we never thought would happen are happening, and thoughtful Christians are asking this question, what kind of a man, what kind of a woman does it really take to live in a culture like this? That, that sentiment was expressed by, by Cardinal Francis George. I, I, I never forgot this quote. He said, quote, I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison. And his successor will die a martyr in the public square. And his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in history. I don't know if we're going there anytime soon, but we might be. More and more, we see this marginalization of of the Christian worldview. We, We see things like Second Lady Karen Pence is attacked just for teaching art at a Christian school. We see public high school students in Pennsylvania battling a Bible ban on their campus. We see Chick-fil-A being banned from being in airports because of their biblical worldview. And it seems like in the court of law, more and more, people of a conservative Christian worldview are being unfairly targeted. These are issues of religious liberty that we ought to care about. That's why this Saturday night, we have this important event we call the Underground Sessions, where we're going to discuss the important issue of religious liberty. I hope that you can come out to that. We're really going to tease this issue out more and more. So mark your calendar. We hope to see you this weekend. Now let's go back to to Revelation chapter 2. The Jesus followers in Pergamum refused to bow down and held fast to the name of Jesus. They said, he is Lord, not Caesar, even to the point of watching their friends die. One of them was named Antipas. You see him here. Now, history actually tells us what happened to him. He was roasted alive in a brass bull during the reign of Domitian. I have a picture of how this would work. I want to warn you, this is kind of a disturbing picture. The brass bull was designed to fit a man inside, and then they would set a fire below it to literally cook him alive. And as the brass bull got hotter and hotter and hotter, the victim inside would begin screaming. And they had designed trumpets so that his screams would make really loud, interesting noises. And then smoke would become, start coming out of the, the bull's nostrils. Just crazy stuff. No wonder Jesus says Satan lives in your city. Who else could invent such a device? We think living in New Jersey is tough. <laughs> this is like a whole other level. Now, when Jesus speaks about Antipas, who died in this way, he uses very personal pronouns to describe him. He calls him my witness. Antipas belongs to me. Amen. He held on to my name. Amen. He's my witness. These are my people who hold on to my faith. Antipas is mine. He has a relationship not with the king of Rome, with the king of kings. And John says, I've seen the king of kings. I've seen the throne of the universe. Domitian wasn't on it. Don't 
bow down. Jesus is Lord. Now, how do you get that kind of strength? How do you get that kind of courage? How do you get that kind of toughness? Point three, you got to hold on for the greater reward. Hold on for the greater reward. Notice how he ends this particular letter with these two promises. The first one is this in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, God had provided manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness to eat as provision. This was, we learn in in the book of John, a picture of Christ, the bread of life sent down from heaven to nourish not our bodies, but our souls. And one day we will feast with him in his very presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what those who are victorious will enjoy, feasting not with food sacrificed to idols, but sitting down to eat with the very bread of life himself. But before that, even in this life, I believe, there is this special provision from God himself when we suffer for his sake. There is a nourishment for the soul. Just between the believer and the Lord, it's a hidden manna. It's hidden from the world. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. There is a sweetness there. There is a grace there. When you suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and your beliefs, there is a nourishment there for you. There is a mercy there. There is a provision there. And he gives you grace to endure suffering for his sake. Then he says this, second reward. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now take out your stone. What is this all about? This stone was called a tessera. It was a ceremonial stone used as a token of admission. If you bowed down to Caesar, you got your token, you got your stone, you could buy and sell, you could go to the feasts, you could go to the festivals. But the Christians in Pergamum would not bow down. But here Jesus says, I'm going to give you access to something far better. Not to the table of pagans, not to the table of idols, to the table of God himself, to a better table. This is our white stone, our access to heaven to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is, it is white, symbolizing the purity that Christ gives us because of his righteousness through his death and resurrection on the cross. This is our access to his kingdom, to eternity, not to the feast of Caesar, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Notice the name. Some people ask me, what's this name? I say, no one knows. Notice, it's something that's just between you and the Lord. You know, over the last couple of decades, I have this little secret code that I've developed with my daughters. Whenever they're at a sporting event or in a play or they're up on the stage graduating or doing something, um, you know, that where they're named or they get an award or something and they're honored in some, some fashion... Uh, while the rest of the, the audience is, is applauding, I have this really loud, obnoxious uh, whistle that I do, right? And so it's really loud. It's like this double shrill thing. You can't mistake it. They, they, know, they know that their dad is out there, uh, you know, uh, embarrassing them and whistling for them at all of these events, you know, for 20 years of this. And so usually on the way home, you know, we're having this conversation. Oh, congratulations, all that. Hey, dad, I heard you whistle. And it's just our little thing. None of the other kids really know about it. None of the other parents really know what we're doing. But they, they, we have this little thing where they know that their dad is proud of them. Here's what this verse is teaching us about God. 
your God has a special way to communicate just between him and you. Your God has a secret that's only just between him and you. You see, the scriptures promise us that for those who are truly in Christ, we have this name that's been written down in the Lamb's book of life before the world began. And in the scriptures, we see this a lot. People get these new names once they become authentic followers of the Lord, right? Abram becomes Abraham, or, or Jacob becomes Israel, or Simon becomes Peter, or Saul becomes Paul. A new name was inextricably linked to your new identity. See, Jesus didn't come just to forgive us or make us a little better. He came to make us a brand new person. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, behold, a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So think about that. What is the area in your life where you're tempted to compromise the most? The old self. Maybe you had a bad name. Maybe you were called a liar, an exaggerator. Today, God has given you a new name. In Christ, you are a truth speaker. You are integrity. Some of you, the culture made you compromise and gave you a name like porn addict, cheater. I'm here to encourage you. If you repent and place your trust in Christ, he'll give you a new name, pure heart, holy one, son or daughter of the most high God, faithful, free, forgiven. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that white stone and remember that this represents who you are in Christ. The white stone represents the new you. And put that somewhere where where it will remind you of who you really are. Maybe you want to put that in your car so that you see it on your way to and from work. Maybe you want to put that by your bedside. Maybe you, you want to go home and place it near an area where you're tempted to compromise. And every time you see it, you can pray, Holy Spirit, give me the strength to overcome, to walk away from this. Give me power to live into my new name. I have a pure heart. I don't want to do anything to ruin my relationship and fellowship with you. That's the stone. So what kind of person do you have to be to be a Christian in a culture that's not very tender towards your faith? Well, you need to be someone who holds on for God's greater reward, for the greater reward. Hold out, hold fast, hold on. One of my favorite Bible verses is in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For anyone who comes to God must not just, it's, it's not just that we have to mentally assent and believe that he is. It's not just that we, have, we must believe that he is, but also we have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, later in Hebrews 11, it talks about all these great models of faith, like Moses. It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward as grand as Egypt was, Moses didn't cave into that seduction that constantly implored him to give in. No, he looked beyond that to the greater reward, and he lived his life in light of that reward. There will be moments in following the Lord that are difficult, where holding on to your faith will be hard, whether it's trying to raise your kids as a Christian in this society, or upholding your own integrity in the workplace, or serving and giving your life away. And that takes faith. There are decisions that you'll make that nobody sees and they'll never know about, but God says, I see. I know about them. And one day, 
I will bring them up someday in front of you. I've never forgotten. That's the call, to live for God's greater reward. How do we live in a culture that's not very tender towards our faith? Well, we have to hold out for God's best. We have to hold fast to our faith. And we have to hold on for the greater reward, God's reward. Let, let me invite the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in one more song. And as they do, I just want to finish with one story. There was an older missionary who had spent uh, the vast majority of his life in Africa, 60 years slaving away over there. He had lost his wife, actually, to malaria. At the end of his life, he was coming back home. He was coming back to America. His health was broken, and he was dying. He didn't have any friends in America. And he happened to be traveling back on the same exact airplane where President Eisenhower was on the plane traveling back to America, too. They were just on the same plane. When the airplane landed in New York, they open the door and they roll out the red carpet and there's bands and confetti and signs everywhere that say, welcome home, Ike, which of course is Eisenhower's nickname. And the missionary came off the plane and he saw all these people welcoming Eisenhower and he started getting a little discouraged. And he says to himself, you know, you live for the Lord all your life and this is what you get. Nobody knows or cares. You're lonely, you're sick, and you're dying. And he started feeling sorry for himself until he said, then the Lord came and just kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, my son, you're not home yet. Hold out for God's best. Hold fast to your faith. Hold on for the greater reward. Amen? Can we pray? Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for preserving these ancient words so that we might today even learn from you afresh in our culture in the 21st century how we can stay true to you and our precious faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would now give us the grace, that you would give us the strength so that we might learn. We might learn these ancient truths. Help us, God, to hold out for your best for our lives and not to settle. Help us, God, when facing ridicule to hold fast to our faith. And help us, God, as we make daily decisions to live our lives for you, to hold on to the greater reward, your reward. I pray all this in Jesus' mighty name and for his reputation. Amen. Let me invite you to stand as we respond and worship.